0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, you need to be in Luke 12. And just as a quick aside, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those underneath your uh, seat. Maybe every three or four seat would have one, or th- seats would have one for you. And I think it's page 566 in there. So if that would be a help to you, feel free to grab that. But it would really serve you to have a Bible in front of you so you can follow along and... Um, and track along with us this morning. Okay, so we've got a lot of, we've got a lot of ground to cover. And so uh, let's jump in. If you, if you, by the way, if you stumbled in, this is week three of a set of sermons called Gospel, Greed, and Generosity. where we're trying to figure out how the gospel is good news in relationships to money and possessions. And so asking God to, to shape us um, w- with how we think about money and possessions. That we would have actually a Godward view and a biblical view of these things. And so um, this is where we find ourselves in, in Luke chapter 12. And so we spent some time in here last week, but let me pick it back um, up again in verse 13. Randomly, a guy comes to Jesus and asks the question and ask a question in verse 13. It doesn't fit the context of where, where, what Jesus was talking about or where he was going. It's a random question out of nowhere in verse 13 when someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to, in, to divide the inheritance with me. Now, this man thought he had an inheritance problem, but Jesus is about to show him that he's actually got a heart problem. Okay, so look at verse 14. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? In verse 15. And he said to them, Take care. This is the words of Jesus to you and I. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So last week we looked at that verse, verse 15. We said last week that that verse contains both a warning and it can, it contains great wisdom for us. So, so here's the warning, take care, be on your guard against greed, against covetousness, against materialism. And so we, we talked last week about what a definition of those words are. I'm kind of looped them all together, using them interchangeably and said this, that greed is an inordinate desire for money and material things. An inordinate desire for money and material things. So greed is looking at money and material things and thinking this, believing this. That if I can get those things, then I'll have real life. If I'm going to have real life, though, it's going to require me getting those things it's this inordinate desire, it's this belief that money and things and possessions can actually give you the sort of significance, the sort of satisfaction, and the sort of security that your heart craves. Okay, this is what greed is. It's, it's that sort of a belief about money and possessions. And, and Jesus tells us to be on guard against it. Why? Because he knows that greed does not leave the human heart by itself. That it's a lingering sort of a thing in, in essentially every one of our hearts. That there's not a person in here that is immune to greed. And so last week we talked about nine reasons why Jesus gives this warning to take care, to be on your guard. To actively set up defenses around greed. To actively, proactively wage war against greed. Why it would be that he, he tells us that. And so last week was nine reasons. Not going to recap those. But if you missed last week, it would really be good for you to go get the podcast so you can stay up to date with us and in and the flow of, of where we've been. Okay, so, so why is it that Jesus gives us that warning, though? Because Jesus knows that there, is, is, there are few things like greed and money and possessions that can lure you away from a love for God. The, the reason for this warning, ultimately, is that Jesus knows there are few things that have the unique power of money and possessions, of greed, that, that sort of impulse, there, there's few things in life that have that sort of power to lure you away from the love of God. That's why he gives this warning that that money is hazardous, that it offers these enticing promises like I can make you happy. If if you have me, you've got real life. Can I just tell you the only problem with that is it's a lie. It doesn't work That, that when you look to money and possessions for life and satisfaction and happiness, it actually functions like salt water. It leaves you dehydrated and delusional at the end of the day. This, this is how money and possessions work, but it offers this seductive promise that if you've got me, you'll have life. I, I love what um, John D. Rockefeller, one time he was asked, how much is enough? This is one of the richest ma- men in history. How much is enough? And you know what his response was? One more dollar. See, this is, this is the effect of money. It's never enough. It, it, it can never come through on this promise. Money and possessions always overpromise and 100% of the time under A hundred percent of the time, um, Kobe Bryant, this was really interesting a few years ago in a sports illustrated interview. This is a guy that he's got a big stockpile. He's got a pile probably a lot bigger than yours and a lot bigger than mine. Right? So, so he, he could actually kind of test this out. Does money and possessions actually give you some, some meaning and life and happiness? And he was asking that interview, um, are, are you happy? And I think his response is really telling. He looked back and said, I don't believe in happiness, See, this is what it's like when you try to find your life in money and possessions. When you start to believe that money and possessions can deliver on that, greed has gripped you and it's salt water to you. Dehydrated and delusional is where you end up in the midst of that, j- just like him. So, so he gives this warning, take care, proactively guard yourself against greed. That's proactive, wage war. And then he gives us this, uh, this, this wisdom. So it's a warning and wisdom and the wisdom is in the back half of verse 15 for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. If there is one hope that I have for you and I over this set of sermons, it's that God would cement that deep in your heart that your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Okay, now look at me here that the essence of your life is not altered. If you have another house or a new house, if you have a bigger bank account, or a smaller one. The essence of your life is not altered. If you have another car, or a new, it's not altered. If you have the next new luxury, it's not, the essence of your life does not change. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. That the essence of your life is not dependent upon you getting the next new gadget or the next toy. The essence of your life is not altered in any way. But this is what he's saying: the, your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. it's not found there. I I love what C.S. Lewis said, that he who has God in everything has no more than he who has God alone. So this is what Jesus is saying, that he who has God in everything has no more than that person who has God alone. Jesus is saying that it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Like if you've got Jesus, you've actually got everything you need. That, that Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. But in turn, the implication is your life does consist in the abundance of God's grace for you. That's where it consists, in Jesus. So, so there's great warning and, and, and then there's some great wisdom. Okay, now then we get to verse 16. And in verse 16, Jesus takes the teaching of verse 15 about greed... And he puts it in story form. Like, so verse 16 and, and following, the, the 21, is really greed in story form. That's, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's taking that teaching in verse 15 and putting it in the context of a story. Okay, so this is where we pick it up um, when we get to verse 16 and, and following. Okay, now I want to jump to the point of the parable. What, what Jesus is actually, the main point that he's actually trying to get at in, in 16 and, and on. Look down at verse 20. Do you see verse 20? Do you see that word fool? This is the point of the parable that this man is an absolute fool before God. Okay. Now, when you think about the word fool, here's, I think a couple of things to kind of give this some meaning first that that is, that is like in the biblical category of things that you don't want to be right So if you've got foolish lined up on one side and wisdom on the other side, you want to be in the wisdom category. See, here's what a fool means. It's got a rational and a spiritual kind of component to it. The rational is a thinking problem that they just don't think well. How they think life works does not line up with the way life really works. They're out of touch with reality. So to call someone a fool, like what Jesus is saying, here's another way of saying this guy is really insane. He does not know how life works. He can't see correctly. So it's got a rational component, but it's also got the spiritual component. The, the, another way to think about a fool is a person that is defying God because he actually thinks he knows more than God knows. So, so it's a rebellious person, a defiant person, a person who would shake their fist at God as if they're the God of the universe, right? So, so a fool is in the biblical category of things that you don't want to find yourself. Okay, now here's the question I want to try to answer. Why is it that Jesus calls this man a fool? Like, what is it about this man that we see here that makes Jesus say this guy's insane? I mean, this guy has totally lost it. He does not see clearly. Okay, so I want to give you four answers to this. Why it is that this man is a foolish man. Why this is a rich fool and not a wise fool. Why that is. Okay, so let's start in verse 16. Starts with this, and Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. Okay, now um, I, I want to just point out two observations really quick here. First of all, this guy is rich before the parable started. Okay, so he's rich when you get to verse 16. Before he's done anything else, this guy is, he is he's loaded. He, he has got money in the bank. Okay, so, so and I just want to make this as clear as possible that Jesus is not out to be against wealth. He is not out against the, the like good like effort and action toward acquiring wealth and the right acquisition of wealth. Jesus is not anti any of those things. We, I, I think it would be, a, a, we could all probably recognize this, we need Christians across the spectrum when it comes to financial just resources that fund the mission of God. So so we need them all. So, so God is not out against that. The, The problem is not that this man is rich. The problem is not that his land has produced in a great way. That's not the problem. The problem is what he is about to do with his riches and what he thinks about his riches. That's the issue here. So let me just say this clearly. You can go to Solomon. You can go to Abraham. You can go to Job. All of these people in the Bible, very wealthy, but none of them had condemnation from God. So the problem is not wealth. The problem is not um, acquiring wealth. The problem is what we do with wealth, wealth and how we think about wealth. Okay, so that's the issue. So coming down to verse 17. So verse 16 is not a problem. Verse 17 is where the problems start. It says that in light of his land producing wealth, He thought to himself verse 17 and he thought to himself, what shall I do for? I have nowhere to store my crops. Now, there's a part of verse 17 that I love. He asked a great question. He's had I mean, his business is blowing up. He's had a bumper crop. Right. And he asked a great question. What am I going to do with this stuff? Like, God has just entrusted to me something. Now, what am I going to do with the something that God has entrusted to me? That is a great question to, to ask. And that is a question that every person in the room needs to be asking in light of what God has entrusted to you. So that's a great question. But here's the problem. The reason this guy is a rich fool is because of this. Reason one is that his question was to the wrong person. Look at how verse 17 starts. And he thought to himself... Who is he asking the question to? He's asking it to himself. Who should he be asking the question to? Probably God in light of God entrusting all of this stuff to him, right? I mean, this guy is a farmer. So it's really easy to see it in a farming kind of a a culture that this man cannot bring the rain. He is not a rainmaker. God is the rainmaker. He can't make seed grow. Only God can do that. So God has entrusted all of this to him. And rather than asking God the the questions about his money, he's asking himself the question. Okay, do you see the problem? God is pretty opinionated on this. He actually wants you to consider his will and his wishes with the money he's entrusted to you. And and our man, our rich fool's problem is he's excluded God. He doesn't consult God. And, And let me just try to be clear on this side of it, too. God is not just interested in you consulting Him. He's actually interested in you listening and then you obeying Him. And see, our man's problem is he didn't do any of those things. He didn't consult God with it. He didn't listen to God about it. And he didn't obey God in it. He was a man left to himself. His wishes, his wants, his thoughts, his ideas. And can I just tell you, that always goes badly. Always goes badly. So I, I just want to give you this encouragement. If, if you're a person who, um, this is how you think about the money God's entrusted to you. I will make my decisions, which I would say is probably 99 out of 100 families. See, if there's no other people in the world that know your financial situation, how much you make, how much you've got in the bank, how you spend the lens that you spin through, if there's nobody else that knows that, can I just say, I think you're going to be a rich fool. I think you're going to be the person that makes dumb financial decisions like this guy does. See, I think it's an invitation to say this. I need to get in good community with my finances and I need to get these before God where God is in the equation. God is consulted. God's listened to and then he's actually obeyed. That it's not just me and my money. This is money that God has entrusted to me to do w- with what he would want. To obey his wishes with. But, but in, this, in this parable, he's a rich fool because he doesn't do any of those things. He's a man left to himself, his ideas, his wishes. And that always leads to the second problem. So he doesn't just ask the, 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 the wrong person. He comes to all the wrong conclusions. This is the second reason he's a fool. Is He asks the, the question to the wrong person. Second reason... All the wrong conclusions are being drawn from it. Okay, so, so watch how this plays out in verse 18. Look at his wrong conclusions. It goes like this. And he said, so what, what am I going to do with it? Left to himself, here's what he says. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones and larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and all of my goods. Okay, so I, I want to make sure that we've got the full kind of breadth of, of what's happening here. So, so let me maybe ask this question. Is it always wrong to build bigger barns? Okay, so I'm going to try to give an answer and then walk you through this. I don't think it is always wrong to build bigger barns. I don't think the point of the parable is saying it's always wrong if you tear down your barns and you build a bigger one to store more grain. That's not the point of the parable. So, so think about this. If you're a business owner and God gives you a year where your business really grows, I don't think it's always wrong for that business owner to reinvest that money into his business so it can grow more. I don't think it's always wrong. Um, just like I don't think it's always wrong um, for a person to decide uh, we're going to build a new house. I don't think it's always wrong for you to decide that another car or a new car is, is Next. I don't think any of those things are, are necessarily wrong. That the point of the parable is not saying that it's always wrong to build bigger barns. Okay, so, so um, let me give, in light of that, let me give a warning for two different categories of people kind of in the room as it relates to the bigger barn issue. There are some in the room who you could not afford to build a bigger barn. I mean, let's just cut, cut to the chase and say we, I, we couldn't afford to build the bigger one if we wanted to. Right. And so so we couldn't afford to do it. And maybe this is the other kind of the same category, but the other person that might fit into this one is that God was not would not give you the freedom to build a bigger barn. So so you get this before God and he would look at you and say, I don't want you to reinvest it. I don't want you to build a new house. I don't want you to buy another car. I don't want you to do any of those things. Now, if you're in that category, can't afford it or God's saying no to you. Here's what you're very prone to self-righteousness. Now the measure of a man's Christianity and his spirituality is dependent upon him having the same conviction before God that you do. So we, we, we start to look down upon these other people, kind of down our nose at those people who actually build the bigger barn, thinking, well, if, only could, if they could be a little more spiritual, the world would be a little better place. If only they weren't building bigger barns, we, we could actually do some things around here. And we begin to look down our nose at them. And listen, if that's if you're in that category, can't afford it, or God's saying no to you, you need to be aware of your heart and that tendency. Because here's the thing, if if you get mad at people who build bigger barns, it probably says more about you than them. Probably more about you than them, all right? Okay, so here's the other warning to the other side. For those who actually do and can't afford, and God gives the okay to build a bigger barn on, here's the warning to you. You better be self-aware enough to know that you will give yourself a million reasons to justify why you should build a bigger barn when God says no. A million of them. Now we could elaborate here for the rest of our time. And we could go on for days here. And let me just give you one illustration of this. Isn't it amazing how as soon as a family gets to 3 kids, how a 3 bedroom house no longer works? I mean, it's as if we really believe that we're going to scar our kids forever if we bunk them up in one room. That they might die. That we probably just ruined their potential and their future. It's like two kids, one bedroom would never work for them. Can I just say that's not true? But if you're not careful, you'll convince yourself that you need a bigger home because you need all of your kids to have one room and then a huge playroom on top of that. See, you just need to be very aware. I don't care if we're talking about a bass boat, about a lake house, about a new house, about anything, any purchase. We could be talking about an iPhone. You just have to have Siri, right? We could be talking about any of them. But here's the point. You better be very aware, self-aware that you will always give yourself a million reasons why you should when God's saying you shouldn't. Okay. But the point of the parable is not build a bigger barn. Don't build a bigger barn. That's not the point to say barns are always bigger. So just to be clear on this for some in the room, God's going to say this, it is perfectly okay for you to build a bigger barn. It would be in alignment with my will for you do it. And for others, he's going to say, don't do it now. And and notice this, it has, this guy is a fool. He, He built a bigger barn. He could afford the bigger barn. So just because you can't afford to build a bigger barn doesn't make a bigger barn good for you. Doesn't make it right for you. See, this is the issue. This is what it's raising here is the problem is he asked the wrong person the question. And because he asked the wrong person the question, he came to the wrong conclusion. This man, it was a hundred percent for sure. God was saying, don't build a bigger barn. I've got other ways for you to use that money. Other kingdom ways for you to invest that money. Don't build a bigger barn. But because this guy didn't listen to God, consult God, obey God, didn't didn't include God in on the equation, he builds the bigger barn and because of that he's a rich fool. See so he came to all the wrong conclusions. And, and I think this is like one of those interesting things, just pastorally, how to deal with things like the question of, should we do a lake house? Should we do another house? Should we do this car, that car, what car? All of those questions. Here's the problem. I can't give you black and white answers on that. It's shades of gray. And this is what, it's, this is, what is required of you in the middle of those decisions. You getting before God, listening to God, and then you being willing to obey God regardless of what he tells you. See, what I get a chance to press on when you start asking questions like that is motives. Why are you doing this? And this is going to lead us to our third reason this was a rich fool. Is he had terrible motives. His motives were all wrong. He had a mixture of weird stuff going on on a heart level as to why he wanted to build bigger barns. So, so read with me here. Reason number three, he's a fool. He had wrong motives. And just as a quick aside, look at verse 19. And as you're, as you're looking at verse 19, I just want you to hear this. If you are retired if you're close to retirement, or if someday you would like to retire. I'm I'm guessing that's all of us in the room, right? You need to listen very closely because Jesus is about to meddle in your affairs. Okay, so look at verse 19. And I will say to my soul... This is the rich fool. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up. Build bigger barns. Do, Do stockpile money. Why? You'll have ample goods laid up for many years. And this is what you'll get to do in the end. You'll get to relax. You'll get to eat. You'll get to drink. And you'll be merry. Now, tell me if that sounds like the American dream that millions are living for. Tell me if that sounds a little bit like that. I think those four words are the best summary of what the American dream is. Like the American dream is this. You take risk early. So get your, like, sow your oats, get your wild side out, get to college and get a clue, right? Then you get to college, you get your degree, and then you get out and you get a career going. And then you start to kind of settle in and you start to establish. So you start to move up the ladder. You start to do the thing. You start to get the, the promotion. You finally get the new cubicle. You might even get the corner office if you're lucky. So you start to, to establish and you start to settle in. And then you kind of get to this earnings mode where now you're kind of at the top end and the peak end of your earning potential. So now you start to kind of stockpile and you start to kind of push things in a bigger pile and, and you start to, to, to make sure you're, you're, you're climbing and that your words like, portfolios and iras take on a whole new meaning at this point and then you kind of consolidate and maintain speed through those last few years of your earnings now you get the pile pushed kind of all together and you do everything you can to protect it because now you're getting ready for your last few years in this thing we call retirement where the dominant theme is relax eat drink and be merry. What, where the dominant theme is, we've got to create some space here. We've paid our dues, we've done our thing, and, and now it's time to eat at Luby's a lot. Now, now it's time to, to make sure we're, we're all protected and that, that life is going well for us. And that, now it's time to make sure our golf game is in good shape. Now it's time to settle in and waste the last third of our life. This this parable, Jesus is using the same mentality that drives the American dream to illustrate a fool, to illustrate insane thinking out of line with reality, to illustrate what it means to be spiritually rebellious toward God. And I just wonder if God took a sampling of our hearts and laid them open across this room, if that's not the exact thing he would find in this room. The mindset that says, relax, eat, drink, and be merry, that that is the goal in life. I could lay that over your motives. Lay that over the reason that you're working and the reason that you're saving and the reason that you're investing and the reason that you're trying to stockpile some money someday. And ask yourself the question, does it look like our rich man's motive? Does it look like the motive of, because I want a period of time in life where I can relax, where I can eat, where I can drink, and I can be merry without any other concerns. Ask yourself that question. And I think what we're going to find is we're a lot of rich fools around here. You, me, us, that we're a lot of rich fools. Same motive. Okay, can we talk about retirement for a second? And, and this is, I, I think this is, it needs to get a little bit painful for a lot of us in the room. There are some good reasons for retiring, for saving for retirement, for having a portfolio, for doing all. There's some good reasons for that. And there's some really bad reasons for it. And my concern is that for us in the room, we have a lot of bad reasons for it. See, here's the bad reason. This is the bad motive for you to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That is the bad motive. So let me translate what that means. That means I've worked all my life, I've slaved away. I've raised kids. I've had the two-year-old in my house tearing up everything. Couldn't have anything nice because they break it. I've had all of that. And now I just want a season where I don't have any of it. I just want a season where I can get around the idol of comfort and convenience and worship there for a while. That's the bad motive. And I think that drives 99% of the reason people are stockpiling money for that day. Because we want a season where we can disengage from the kingdom of God and kingdom purposes and the concerns of God as we run after with reckless abandon, comfort, and, and convenience. Now so you need to ask yourself that question. Is that me? Because it's really easy to look at the rich fool in this and it's a little harder to lay that over your life. See, I'm not saying all saving is bad. I'm not even saying retirement. Retirement can be a great thing. I think for many of us, it's a terrible thing because we're totally forfeiting fruitfulness for the kingdom of God. See, here's a good motive for retirement and for saving right now is for you to have a day where you have laid up ample goods, much like this man, where where you would have a day where you would be a little bit freer in life, where you could spend the last third of your life saying this, God, whatever you want me to do, whenever you want me to do it, God, I am there. You just say just say the word and I am there. That is a great motive. But see, those two motives can't coexist at the same time. It's one or the other. It's, it's comfort or you crucify comfort and you actually make a difference in the kingdom of God. Okay, now I, I want to take a second to talk directly to the guys who, um, who are nearing retirement or in retirement. For, for our people in the room, it, it's going to be the guys are a little bit older than the norm in here. Right. And so a a couple of things to this, to this, to the guys in here, and I want you to make sure you're looking at me here. If if this is you and for the young guys in the room, like me, you need to listen up on this because this is coming for you. So first of all, I want to say this to those guys. I mean, for us, it's like probably like 45 and above you fit that category for us. Right. And so, um, if you're the guys in here that, that are, are moving in that direction in that thing right now called retirement, First of all, I want to say this, that we appreciate you very much. That, that I prayed a lot for God to give us people who are in that age demographic. And here's the reason that I prayed for that a lot. is because I think it can actually be the season of your life, the third of your life that you have the most fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. So I think retirement can actually be that. I think that's a good motive for retirement to say, God, I want this season to be the most fruitful that I've had in my whole life in regards to investing my life into the kingdom of God. God, I want that. Give me that. But can I just tell you this? I want to warn you, if you're in that crew, I want to warn you of this. You cannot worship around the idol of comfort and make a difference in the kingdom of God. You can't do it. It's one or the other. Your mindset cannot be, I'm going to kind of get in my groove. I'm going to get after convenience. I'm going to get my life padded. I'm going to make sure people kind of stay out of my life. I'm going to ask people to leave me alone so that they don't kind of alter my worship of the idol of convenience. I'm going to make sure that I've got all that stuff. You can't have that and fruitfulness. So you're going to have to make a decision. And, And one of my, I think one of my jobs as your pastor is to help you see that you can have great fruitfulness but that it's going to cost you convenience. It's going to cost you comfort. So see, if you're in that a little bit older demographic, look around you. There are all these young couples, 25, 30 years old in here, and God has especially equipped you with life's wisdom and experience and freedom, a measurable amount of freedom. And think about the difference you could make if you'll invest your life into them. So you've got one of two options. You can kind of hunker down and build your life around people who look like you in the same stage of life as you, all of that. Or you can actually start investing your life into some younger folks around here and actually make a difference in the kingdom of God. And can I just encourage you, can I plead with you to go for that, the kingdom of God? Can can I just plead with you? There's a day you're gonna stand before God and comfort is gonna give you no comfort then. I just plead with you, man. move toward the kingdom of God, move toward fruitfulness. This could be one of your most fruitful seasons of your life. So I pray that for you. So this man was was a fool. He, He was dumb. He was stupid. Why? Because his motives were bad. His motive was relax, eat, drink and be merry. Here's the fourth reason why this man was a fool is that he was blind. Look at verse 20. He was blind. Verse 20 goes like this, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I, I think you could maybe summarize this guy's blindness in three different areas. Here's the first one. He was blind to the brevity of life. He was blind to the brevity of life. See, this man is in the middle of drawing up blueprints for his barns and God was drawing up blueprints for his obituary. And he couldn't see those two things. See, money and possessions, one of, one of the dangers and the hazard of money and possessions is it makes you short-sighted. It, it puts a gravitational pull on your life to think that this world is all there is. The problem is this world is not all there is. See, it made our man presumptuous. All he could think about were bigger barns. And he couldn't think about that he may be standing before God tomorrow. See, he couldn't think about that. He was too engrossed in what he was doing and what he was building. This is why I think the psalmist encourages us to ask God to teach us to number our days. To give us a view of how short and unpredictable life is. I think this is why James warns us against presumption. Don't just make your plans out there without considering that you may not not be there to enjoy those plans. So let me ask you the question. In the way you think about the future, do you factor in that you may die tomorrow? Do you factor that in? That you may actually be, the real fact that you may actually be standing before God tomorrow. See, if you don't factor that in, it's because greed, money and and possessions has put this gravitational pull on your life. This made you think this is all there is. It's blinded you. It's made you short sighted. Second thing he was blind to is the fleeting nature of money and possessions. This is the question of verse 20. Whose are these things going to be? Last week we answered it. It's not going to be yours. You're not taking any of this with you. We we said this last week that there's no U-Hauls behind hearses. None of, that stuff is, none of that stuff is traveling with you when you leave. But I think another question is you need to think about where they're going to be. In a hundred years from now, everything that you treasure is going to be in a trash dump somewhere. Do you know that? All these little trinkets and things and cars and they're going to be in a dump somewhere. So you need to think about that, the fleeting and diminishing and dimming nature of everything earthly. He was blind to it. He couldn't see it. And number, and number three, he was blind to what really matters in the end. See, this man had a lot of wealth, but he had the wrong kind of wealth. He was wealthy, just the wrong kind of wealthy. There is a difference between being rich and being rich with God. You know the difference? One actually matters in the end. There is a difference between being rich and rich toward God. One actually matters in the end. So so what does it mean to be rich toward God? I think you can maybe think about it in, in two ways. One is on a belief level, that it means that God more and more and more is becoming what you think of as your most treasured possession, as your real wealth, that God is becoming your real wealth. This is, maybe the picture, the illustration of this would be Matthew 13, where you've got a man who sells everything he owns and in his joy buys a field because he finds the treasure in the field. Like that's the picture of what it means to be rich toward God, that you actually see God as that treasure, as the greatest thing, the most prized thing in your life. That's what it means to be rich toward God. And now that plays itself out on a behavior level by you leveraging all of your earthly riches to show that your real riches is God. So this is how it plays out. On a belief level, it's saying that I'm moving toward this belief that God is my real wealth. And on a behavior level, it's actually using your earthly wealth to show the world that God is your real wealth. That you're leveraging what God has entrusted to you for God's mission and God's concerns in the world. This is what it means to be rich toward God. Now, let me give you a uh, one pastor's kind of take on why this man was a fool in in light of of this idea that that he just was blind. He says this about it. This man, he was literally and tragically a damned fool. Why is that? Here's the way I would put it. By the way he used the increase of his riches, he gave no indication of being rich toward God. Now, I just wonder if, if God were to increase you tomorrow, if you're instantly thinking, how do I use this to show that I'm rich toward God, that God is my real wealth? He goes on. He kept building bigger barns and, and that building bigger barns might be OK if you're storing the grain for a use that for a use that shows that God is your treasure. See, there is a way that you could actually be storing in barns and you having a mindset of I'm using that wealth to show a plan for that wealth. that would show that God really is my true wealth. Okay, so, so there is that scenario. But, but this farmer is not in that, but this, but what does the farmer say? Verse 19, I will say to my soul. So you have, you have ample goods laid up for many years. So do this, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The, uh, the UC plans to make of his wealth says one thing. And here's the one thing that my treasure is not God. My treasure is relaxing, eating, drinking, and fun. That's my life. And I just wonder if our wealth shows a picture that our treasure is relaxing, eating, drinking, and being merry. He goes on. And the riches in my barns make that possible. So so his plan with the riches is to do that with it. So what's wrong with that? Nothing if there is no infinitely valuable God. Nothing if there is no resurrection. But here's the reality. There is an infinitely valuable God. There is a resurrection. So what's wrong with this man's way of handling his riches is that he fails to use them in a way that shows he treasures God more than his riches. See, this is why he's a fool. And, and I, I'm trying to be as gentle as possible, but I think this is the way that many of us are fools when it comes to our wealth. That our wealth is showing that things other than Jesus, other than God, is our wealth. And when we do that, it's showing that we are out of touch with the way things are. That we, we've gone insane. The greed has gripped our heart. Okay, so this is how I want to end. Um, I'm going to end by uh, by uh, kind of scanning through verses 22 and beyond. And here's what happens in verse 22 and beyond. And in, in, like, think about it in verse 15. In verse 15, Jesus is saying this, don't be greedy, guard against greed. But then in verse 22 and on, Jesus is about to show us how not to do that. See, it's not enough to say, don't do it. Jesus is about to show us how to, to like work in generosity, how to set up guards against greed. So 22 through the, the rest of the uh, this story here is, is under this category, guarding against greed. This is how you guard against it. So, Jesus is going to show us two things we need to know, and he's going to show us two things we need to do to guard against greed. Okay, so pick it up in verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. So, just a quick observation here. If you want to know if greed has gripped your heart, ask you the question Do you worry about money? See, if if you're persistently worrying about money, chances are that's a great indicator that greed has gripped your heart. See, we worry about money because we're looking for money, for for life and satisfaction, and security and significance for all of those things. That's the reason we worry about it. So, So if you're consistently worrying about money, chances are it's indicating that greed has a grip on you. Okay, so two things to know. Number one, We have to know that God is our father. You have to know this, that God is a good father for you. Now, now look at verse 22 here. He said this to his disciples. This does not apply to every person on the planet. This applies to people who have trusted and treasured Jesus, who have been saved by God, adopted into the family. Jesus is saying this. If you want to guard against greed, here's what you have to know. That, 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 I, that God is now a good father for you. Because of my work for you on the cross, God has now adopted you. He's your dad. You're his son. You're his daughter. And he loves you. You have to know that. Okay, so, so look at what he says in verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. You see the word father? Jesus is reminding us that we actually have a good a good father. That God is a father for you if, if you're a Christian. Verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom, and, the th- and all these things will be added to you. Verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See, you were created with a fundamental need in your heart to be fathered by God. But do you know what money and possessions seduce you into thinking? That you're an orphan. That you're an orphan. God has said, I am a father. I will give you everything you need. Money and possessions have this promise attached to him. Maybe he's not a good father. Maybe you actually need me to give you what you need. So Jesus is just gently reminding, God is a good father for you. See, if, if you want to guard against greed, this is the way you do it. You've got to know. You've got to believe. You've got to put faith in this truth. God is a good father. Okay, now now here's the second piece of that. And and by the way, I I think this might be worth just lingering on just for a second to say this and apply this. I think two groups of people need to hear this this morning. One is the group of people in the room who you are really struggling financially. You're really, really in in a difficult spot. And I think you need to hear verse verse 32. I mean, God as a father loves and delights to provide for your needs. To give you the kingdom. He loves and delights to do that. Takes great pleasure in doing that. So I just want to remind you of that this morning. If that's you. Because I I think these these verses provide great comfort if you're in that situation. Now here's the other group of people in here that I think need to hear this. I think there's going to be some of us that God is going to work into us some really good acts of generosity. And you know what it feels like when, when you're about to do something that you feel like is like, Oh my gosh, how am I going to do that? like when you're about to write that check or do that thing, you know what it feels like in that moment? I am about to ruin my life. That's what it feels like to me. I'm, I'm about to, to put my life in the toilet and I'm about to flush it down the drain when I write this check, when I do this thing. That's what it feels like. And, and can I just remind you, for, for those of us in that situation, that God is saying this, I'm a good father for you. I take I take great delight in providing for you. I take great delight in that. So we have to know that God is father. And then second thing we have to know is that God is faithful. So he's not just a father. He's a really, really, really faithful and good father to you. Look at verse 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet yet God feeds them. And of how much more value are you than the birds? He uses ravens. I like how one pastor said it. That is a rat with wings on it, right? He's using a raven of all things. And he's saying, look at those things. They they don't have any storehouses. They have no place to stockpile anything. They have no barns. And yet your father actually feeds them. And if that's a raven, a rat with wings... How much more would he provide and take great delight in providing for your needs as a son or daughter? Do you see what's happening here? He's showing you, he's arguing from like the the lesser to the greater, that if God would provide for a raven, how much more you? God is a faithful father. He's he's good to you. And then he goes on. Look at verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Answer, none of you. If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith. So Jesus says, do you see the flowers of the field? Can you see how fickle they are? Can you see how they're here fleeting, how they're here one day and gone tomorrow? If I would dress them like that, how much more would I provide for my son or my daughter? How much more? I, I think there's this great verse in Isaiah. Um, it's in Isaiah 49, where um, God is using through Isaiah. He's given this illustration of what a nursing mother forget her child. And conclusion, they might, but God won't. And, and, and it's, it's almost like saying this, that, you know, what happens like for a nursing mom, like there's that mama bear things that happen in that moment with that attachment forms. And like, they would die for that kid. God is saying there is, if you're a son or daughter of mine, there has been something that has happened between me and you where I am now daddy bear for you. Like, I, I love you like that. There's that sort of a thing that has happened. If I would clothe a flower, a raven, like if I would do that for them, how much more you? How much more? See, we've got to know this. If you ever want to be set free from greed, it, it is primarily, it happens through you knowing this. God is a father. God is faithful. If you're a son or daughter of God, you can expect him to provide for you, faithful, to be good for you. Okay, now there's two things that I think this passage would tell us to do. Two things. So that's what we have to know. This is what we have to do. Do number one is give. We have to give. If we want to guard against greed, you need to be a good giver. Generosity needs to start flowing if you want to be guarded against greed. So look at verse 29. And do not seek... Um, what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world. Seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. There's a lot there. That's a rich verse. If you want to be a light to the world, you can't be like the world in regards to money and possessions. Right? So there's a lot there, but we got to keep going. Verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, in light of all of that, You've got a good and faithful father. In light of all of that, he says this. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that, that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Giving, selling your possessions, giving, is one of the greatest ways to guard your heart against greed. Giving. Is one of the greatest ways to guard your heart against grief. Here's why. Every time you give, do you know what you're saying to yourself and reminding yourself of? My life does not consist in the abundance of my possessions. It consists in God. See, every time the Spirit prompts you and you have to give, and God is prompting you to give, it is a reminder. My life does not consist in the abundance of my possessions. It consists in the abundant grace of God. This is why giving is such a great way to guard your heart against greed. Because you're reminding yourself of this. You're you're constantly putting this in front of your brain and your heart, reminding yourself that that my life does not consist in, in the abundance of my possessions. Now, we're about to tear into giving here in a few weeks and kind of what that looks like in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But I just want to give you a sampling from this passage and make a few comments on it. See, the number one question about giving is, well, how much do I give? Like, what does giving look like? How how do I know how much is enough? All that. And I, I just want to make a comment from this passage. He says, sell your possessions and give. Sell your possessions. So I don't want to read too much into this, but I think there's something worth commenting there about, maybe observing there, that if you're selling your possessions to give, that probably indicates that it's a lot of hassle and there's probably some sacrifice involved with it. See, if you're having to sell a possession, liquidate things to give, that probably indicates that there's there's some sacrifice going on. This is the idea. I think Jesus is saying, you need to give sacrifice, until it hurts. See, most of us have this mindset when it comes to giving. I can't give like that because I can't afford to. Let me translate that. What that really means is you're saying this. I can't give like that because it's actually going to cost me something if I do it. You see that? See, that's how most of us think about it. That is the point of giving. That's what we're supposed, it's actually supposed, we're we're not supposed to be able to afford it. That's the point. Like it's selling your possessions, having to liquidate things. So I don't think this is the only grid. I think this is a grid you could apply. Okay, I'm not saying this would apply in every situation, but this would be a healthy grid for you. Have you ever, like the Spirit prompted you in such a way where generosity, he's he's wanting generosity out of you. And it's been to such a degree that you've actually had to liquidate some things to make it happen. And I think if that's never been true, there's probably a good chance that we're not to a sacrificial point. We're giving until we can afford to. But see, here's one more grid that I think you could lay over it. When you think about the how much question, and this is the primary grid. I think that the primary point you need to be thinking is this. How much do I need to be giving so that I am fully convinced that my net worth is not in my bank account, the size of my house, and what I drive, what I wear, in any of my money and possessions? What do I need to give to make sure I have equated that my net worth is in God and not in these things. So whatever it takes to do that, you need to give to that point. Whatever it takes to remind you of that, you need to give to that point. That you are fully convinced that my life does not consist in these things. So more of that to come in a couple of weeks. Last thing. And we're going to jump into communion from here. Second, do. Number two, we need to consider. So not just give, we need to consider. Look at verse 24 and 25. Jesus tells us to do this. You need to stop and you need to think. You need to consider the ravens. You need to consider the lilies of the field. You need to have and think about that. That means that you're preaching the gospel to yourself. You're preaching about what Christ has done for you to your heart. You're telling yourself. Just like this man was, was preaching to himself. He was preaching a false gospel. You need to preach a real gospel to yourself. A gospel that says this, my life does not consist in my, my possessions. It consists in Jesus. That's where my life consists of. You need to consider the ravens. You need to stop and think about if God would care for them like this, how much more a son or daughter? The, the flower. If God would do this for them, how much more a son or daughter? You need to stop, meditate, think, preach to yourself. Use your imagination to see those things. And can I just end by pointing us to the ultimate expression of God's love and care for you? Can I, can I point you to the cross and to Jesus as we finish up here? If you want to see God's ultimate expression, it's not even in a raven. It's not in a flower of the field. It's in Jesus being slaughtered on a cross for you, for your sake. See, there is a sense in which Jesus is the ultimate rich fool, isn't he? The, the Bible's going to say that he was eternally wealthy, that he forsake his wealth and took on the rags of a stable, didn't he? For, for, forsook all of his riches for the rags of a stable. The world would look at that and say, you fool, you are out of touch with reality. But God's saying this, can you see how much I love you in that? See, he, he's, the, he's the ultimate rich fool. See, he, he traded all the comfort of heaven for a cross the world would look at that and say, you have got to be crazy. But God's looking at that and he's saying, hey, do you see that? Will you, will you stop and think about that? Will you consider that? That's an expression of my love toward you. And, and so as we finish up here today, we're going to take communion. I think it's an, a, a perfect ending to where we are in this passage. That we're stopping and we're considering this reality. That Jesus was broken and he was bloodied and he was slaughtered on a cross. So you could actually have life. That Jesus was crucified so, so you could actually not be. That, that Jesus, his life was taken from him so you could actually have life. Like, that's what we're stopping to consider here. And listen, it's not until your mind and your heart is saturated with that until you're ever going to be free from greed. Amen? Let's pray together. So I'm going to give you a second just to allow that to sit over your heart this morning. Praying that God would wipe away anything that wasn't helpful and imprint upon your soul the things that were helpful. And let me just remind you that communion is for those who are in right relationship with God. And so maybe you have found yourself in the room and you're kicking the tires on what it means to follow Jesus. And uh, let me just say this, that that we want you to, to take Christ before you take communion. And so we're going to have some, some home group leaders. I'll be on the front left side of the, the room, up here on, by the wall over here. And if you'd like to talk about that, about what it means to follow Jesus, to trust and treasure Jesus, to be saved by God, redeemed by God, we would love to have that conversation with you. I, mean, I just want to encourage you that God stands ready and willing to save today. And, and um, for the rest of us in the room, um, it means that you're in right relationship with God. So this probably means that you need to get before God, and you just say, God, will you, will you show me the things that need to be repented of this morning? And we want to give you a second to do that. The guys are going to play a few songs this morning as we finish up. And this is going to be a second for you to get before God. Maybe you need to repent. See, it's not just about you, you knowing that the nuances of greed in your heart. It's you actually repenting and running from those things into Jesus. And so as we sing, that's going to be a great opportunity for you to do that. And then when you feel ready, you can come up and we've got a table in the back, a couple up front, dip the the cracker in the juice and and take communion as a family. And so let me pray for you and then we'll give you some time with God. God, we love you. And God, I pray for good help. God, I pray that you would give us eyes that can see. God, I pray that, that you would give us a view of the world and a view of Jesus that would show us that our life is in him, not in money and possessions. And so God, I pray for great help. And God, we're so thankful for the work of Jesus for us that we get to celebrate now. His broken body, His blood that was shed for us and for our sin. God, we're so grateful, so thankful. And I I pray that you would help us lock that down over our heart, that we would see the cross as the most beautiful expression of how much you love us and care for us. And God, that might release greed's grip on our heart, that we would know that we are fathered. We're not orphans. So, God, will you give us eyes to see that? It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.